everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. Today I'm speaking with S.C. Moati of Mighty Capital. S.C., welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So, S.C., let's start by introducing our audience to yourself as well as talk a bit about Mighty Capital. How big is the fund? What kinds of investments do you like to make? What check sizes do you like to write? And so forth. Let's get to know one another. Absolutely. So I'm the founder and managing partner of Mighty Capital. Um, the, the fund is myself plus my two partners. And where we invest and how we invest, we write a uh, small check size at a later stage which means it's typically under a million dollars, but at a series at the earliest, and then B and C. The reason we're in the lucky position to invest at later stage is that we give our portfolio companies a very, very unique and very important value add, which is access to hundreds of thousands of early adopters and product managers through um, my organization, Products That Count. And different companies in the portfolio use that access differently. Some use them to sell their product and services, so for customer generation, revenue acceleration purpose. Some use them for business partnership, so scaling. And then some use them for hiring, so really as they are growing their organization, accelerating either the path to revenue or the path to scale. I see. Very interesting. Can we um, talk a little bit of the specifics and then we're going to go to um, some portfolio companies and going through some case studies to understand um, how people are using your platform. So what about geography? Where, uh, where do you like to invest? We invest in the, on the west coast of uh, the United States. And uh, what about industry sectors? Yes, we invest in what I call the third wave of connected technology. So one thing to know about me um, is I'm, a, I'm an expert in that, in that field. I, I wrote a, a best-selling book on this, and I spent a dozen years building uh, product and, and companies in the field of mobility and connected technology. Uh, after I sold my last company, I spent a few years at Facebook. Anyway, so we are where I think uh, in what I call the third wave of connected technology, the first wave being put a phone in every hand, so the Nokia era where I spent a few years. The second wave being collect data about everything and everyone, which is a lot about what Facebook was about. And then the third wave is now now that you have a phone and data in everybody's uh, on everybody, do something useful, and so disrupt the enterprise and disrupt healthcare. And as you do that, some of the infrastructure is going to need to be uh, enhanced um, as, as you know, to, to, to meet the needs of enterprises and, and healthcare organizations. So these are the, the segments, the industry segments we invest in as part of that third wave of connected technology. And is it all B2B? Some of it is B2B. Some of it is B2C. Um, right now, 
I, I am not seeing a lot of opportunities in B2C simply because the platforms that enable disruption of consumer offerings it isn't quite there, right? If you look at what are the, the upcoming platforms, um, there's the, the blockchain platform, which is a little bit, you know, too early for prime time. There's the uh, genomics platform, which is a very interesting area, but not quite yet consumer ready. Um, and then there are a few other platforms around, you know, robotics and such, um, like which people call IoT sometimes. Uh, which which isn't necessarily yet ready for uh, software innovation. It, it's more of a hardware play at this point, which means that it's more in the hands of the big companies. So when you say you have 100,000 early adopters, um, there must be a correlation with what kinds of companies you like to invest in and this community that you've built. What is the composition of that community? Yes, absolutely. So those early adopters are product managers, growth managers, marketing managers, and and who they are, they are um, generally uh, tech professionals working for companies across many different industries, of course technology, but also they work in the innovation divisions of very large conglomerates and, and companies. And those people are basically early adopters for themselves, so of course they'll, they'll test the latest stuff, but mostly and most importantly for their organization. So they are the ones who are bringing the new tools, the new technology, the new services in their, inside their organization. And they do that across the United States and, and across pretty much all verticals. Uh, it, it, it used to be that we were mostly in, in the tech industry, but now about 20% of our audience is uh, life science audience, 20% is like FinTech audience. So, so it's across industries now. Interesting, and, and, and what is the, how do, does this audience stay engaged with you when you say you have this other platform uh, that is kind of like um, adjacent to your fund activities? Uh, what is the, is that a community? Is that a newsletter? How are you engaging with these people? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to, to our website, www.productsthatcount.com, you'll see that we have a number of online programs. Uh, we have uh, videos, podcasts, blog articles, and, and our, our um, website gets several hundreds of thousands of unique visitors every month. And then we have a number of offline programs in the major tech hubs. And so every month in every city where we have a presence, we get anywhere from one to 300 people who get together to learn from um, a C-level person um, to network and basically to talk about what it takes to build a great product. Okay, got it. I understand the model. So let's do some case studies. Tell us about your portfolio. What have you invested in and how have you helped the portfolio companies get to market? Yeah, absolutely. So. 
I'll take one of our recent investments. The company is called Amplitude. It's an awesome mm -hmm. company with an awesome team. What they do is they are a cross-platform analytics provider. So mm -hmm. they go after Omniture or Mixpanel. And a few things I love about this uh, company. Well, first of all, this is a great underdog success story. When they started, they were you know, a small player. There was a, a, a big dog in, in the mix. And through incredible execution and, and a great team and, and a great product, they basically took over the, the top spots in, in one vertical. And now they're expanding. Can you describe the business so we can follow along what's happening really? It's an analytics company. As, as I said, they uh, go after what Omniture provides or what Mixpanel provides. Uh, horizontal? Completely horizontal? It is horizontal, correct. Their customers are... Um, Mozilla, uh, Intuit, um, Walmart, so across all verticals. They go across, you know, uh, websites and mobile and basically any any platform, and they track everything that happens on your website or inside your mobile app, and they give you stats about user behavior and user engagement. And what is the winning a value proposition that helps them win against the omnitures of the world? Well, first of all, they have a, a very solid product uh, that's easy to use. Second, they are cross-platform um, you know, by design, and so they provide that, that visibility by design. And then third, they focus on actual, like, you know, customer-focused metrics like engagement as opposed to vanity metrics like number of clicks, which honestly a, a click doesn't mean anything. So they are looking at really what users are doing, what kind of behavior um, they, they're, uh, they're showing when they're using the service, how you can drive them to be more engaged as opposed to how many clicks a page got. Mm -hmm. And... Uh they came to you at what point and what did you do for them? Yes, so they have been part of the Products Account Network for a number of years. Um, I've known the, the founder for, for a long time. He benefited a lot from uh, being a part of the Products Account Network. He hired some people from it. He um, got some business out of it. Uh, we helped him raise his brand. Um, and, and when he raised his... Uh, Last round, uh, he came to us and said, Products That Count is a, an organization that we feel very close to. Uh, we've benefited a lot from it. We uh, consider it a strategic partner. We'd like you guys to be on the cap table. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so after we made the investment, the value that we've been bringing to them over time, um, we basically... Um, regularly sit down with the executive team, the go-to-market organization, the CMO, the chief product officer, and, and review their, their plan and their goals. And item by item, we, we help them out. So for example, um, they, they have a, a target account list, and we, we help them by making introductions. They have a very aggressive 
uh, enterprise uh, sales strategy. So we give them access to our executive audience, which we get together on a, a frequent basis via invite-only salon and executive events and such. They have a very specific messaging that they're trying to um, convey to their uh, audience. And so we help them by promoting this messaging and, and sometimes even testing their messaging on our blog, in our newsletter, and so on and so forth. Got it. So is this the traditional way that you get involved in a company where you have people uh, in your community who then go out and raise funding and bring you into the cap table, or are VCs also bringing in you into the cap table? Where's, where does the relationship begin? Yeah, so the example of Amplitude, we were brought in by the entrepreneur. That's mm-hmm. about half of the um, way we get brought into deals. And, and entrepreneurs who see the value of products that count tend to come to us because they, they know what we can deliver, and so that's about half of our investments. And okay. then the other half of our investments is the investors of those entrepreneurs who see the value and then come to us and invite us to be part of their syndicate. Okay. And what is your, the size of your involvement in these cases that you're talking about? We're a minority investor, so... We're part of a syndicate. We generally don't lead around. How much do you put in? What is the check size, average check size? Yeah, it's typically under a million dollars. And what, like, is it a quarter million dollars, $50,000? What, what's under a million dollars? Yeah, so depending on the opportunity, it ranges from a few hundred to thousands of dollars to about a million dollars. So in the last, you know, if I, if I look at our last three investments, uh, we've written checks uh, 500 to actually to 1.2 million. Okay. All right. And um, are there other examples that, that are worth discussing that illustrate other aspects of your value proposition? Well, I think that's a good one. Um, because Amplitude is, is really getting value out of access to products that can for the purpose of selling. Uh, some of our other portfolio companies have used us for the purpose of hiring and scaling their teams, uh, which, which, which we've enabled as well. But it's a, you know, it, it's a similar model where they'll say there's great value here um, to have access to this audience, and then the, the purpose of the access varies from, you know, like I said, selling, business development, or hiring. Okay. And which uh, funds and, do and you one thing to clarify, One thing to clarify to your point is we, um, we are not interested in getting involved in companies where we're not adding very tangible value. It's, it's mm-hmm. really important for us to be smart money, to be money that adds a lot more value than the size of the check. Yeah, okay. And um, what VCs do you co-invest with? What VCs are, are familiar with your value proposition? And if you, whether you're bringing them in or they're bringing you in or the companies are bringing them in, where are your uh, collaborators? Yeah, so, you know, lots, lots of them. Um, in, uh, if I look at the last few investments, I mentioned Amplitude, we co-invested with Benchmark and Battery and IVP. Um, another of our recent investment, Fabric Genomics, we co-invested with Matrix Partners. 
Um, and uh, Roche as a strategic investor, uh, we we have a, a number of firms that we're you know very friendly with and and have invested it invested with in the past like uh, Mayfield and, and Menlo and Glenn Capital and Aligned Venture Partners and um, Floodgate. Those are all kind of friends to the fund. Okay. All right, so now um, when you look at the opportunities, besides adding value, are there um, you know, specific investment thesis as uh, regards to are you looking for unicorns, as in billion-dollar-plus stamps, or are you looking for companies that, are, you know, that have mid-sized stamps and would be looking at you know, capital efficient execution and early exits. What is your investment thesis from a scale point of view? Yeah, yeah. So, so let me let me um, give some some perspective on this. Um, there's definitely, you know, I want to say there are three segments of investors out there, um, and I'll call them the the whales and the dolphins and the minnows, which some of the some of your listeners may be familiar with those naming conventions because they come from the, the gaming and social industry. So I'll, I'll draw that parallel to, to kind of tell you what we're looking for. So a, a whale in the, in the gaming industry is somebody who you know, buys all your shiny armors and your purple swords and all that. And so you, you have very few of those. And, and when you find one, uh, you do whatever they ask you to do. Well, a whale in the, in the world of investing is exactly the same. So if you're going to get uh, a whale on your cap table and you're going to take an investment from them, basically you're going to do whatever they tell you to do, and that check better be really, really big. Now, on the other hand, if you're going to take a huge check, you, you need to know how you're going to spend it because otherwise your company isn't going to go anywhere. And that's a lot of the cases of you know current sort of Zombie unicorns, which is a lot of, yep. a lot of right now. So we're, we don't play in that category. We're not interested in playing that game. This is sort of what happens right now. Like the, it, to play, like the, the, the game in that game, in that segment, if you want, is what SoftBank is doing or what Sequoia is doing, and, and we're not playing in that category. The mm-hmm. second category of, of dolphins is, you know, if, if you think about it in the terms of uh, gaming, they're the ones, they're the people who tell you, you totally should play Candy Crush, this is really cool, like they're, they're your social butterflies. Well, we like to think of Mighty Capital as a dolphin where, you know, our portfolio company success is our success. So, uh, you know, when, when you're an entrepreneur and you're, and you're looking for investors, I think you should be looking for dolphins because they will add something unique to your company and they will care a whole lot about making your company successful, right? So you want to think about, like, what kind of access do they have? What kind of ecosystem can they accelerate for you? Um, and, and, and you want to think about, like, how do I you know, swim with the dolphin? How do I, like, leverage them to make myself more successful? And so in the case right. of my capital, swimming with us, right, you get access to that incredibly large community of people, and then you can leverage that for, you know, selling, hiring, testing, and so on. And then the third category of investors, which we're not part of, is the the minnows. And the minnows, you know, in in uh, like are, are all the lurkers on Facebook, and you know, like 99% of your population. So they're excited to be there, but they're incredibly passive, and they don't add a ton of value, right? So you you will 
as an entrepreneur, need to get some of those on your cap table, but you also need to be aware that their value is limited and they can be a, a great time sink. And so you want to... Why limit. do you want to get them on the cap table? I mean, let me push back on that because you don't want those guys on your cap table. Yeah, well, sometimes you you need them because they will help you early on. They will help you get started. And um, No, then, then they don't fall in the minnow category. They fall in dolphin category using your part uh, terminology. Um, as yeah, long as they're passive... If they're passive investors, then you don't want them. But if they add value, they're not they're not passive investors. They're actually doing something for you. Yeah, and that's yeah, exactly a, what you want. Yeah, you you have a you have a good point here. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, to get things started, you you will need to have some of those on your cap table. It's just a reality, right? So you may not want them. Just like you know, you may not want to do the the grind every day, but then there is reality and, you know, sometimes you need to uh, add some, to make some compromises. And, and, and so what I'm, what I'm uh, saying is they will end up on your cap table and this is how you want to effectively manage them, as in, like, you want to keep them entertained, but you know that they're not going to add a ton of value to you. Yeah. So I think the reality is that when you have limited, as an entrepreneur, when you have limited choices, then those kinds of investors may end up on your cap table just because you don't have the power to get to whom you necessarily want to get to. But as you develop validation of your concepts and if your, you know, your customers start to engage with you and, and your, your value proposition starts to get validated, that's when you start to gain bargaining power and then you shouldn't be having those kinds of people on your captive. You should go for the people who will add value. Well, and, you know, you say bargaining power. I don't think of it this way. Like, we're dolphins, so we're not in a in a power struggle mindset. We, we work with our entrepreneurs. Um, I, you know, I, I would rephrase that and say this is more like as you start to gain traction, Right, and revenue is the best way to fund and grow your company. Well, I think that, see, we have a, in our uh, community, we use a terminology, or not terminology, so much a saying, a mantra, that do not go to VCs as beggars, go as kings. Correct. So the problem is there's a lot of people who are just randomly chasing VCs all the time. They probably go have 50 meetings, get rejected by all 50, just because they don't have the goods to raise around with. Instead, if they spend that energy chasing customers, they would make a lot more progress, a lot more headway, and, and everything would go in the right direction. But there is this problem in the ecosystem where entrepreneurs believe that the one fine morning they wake up and decide to become an entrepreneur, the first thing they need to do is go chase VCs. It's a, it's a rampant problem, actually. So I would, I, would, uh, I would agree that the best way to go to a venture capitalist is uh, as, as kings. I, I like that expression. Uh, I'll, I'll, maybe uh, to help your audience, I'll, I'll share a, a, a very important distinction. As an entrepreneur, your job is to say yes. Right. Yes, we'll deliver on time. Well, yes, we'll take on that contract. Yes, we'll you know we'll hire like another person to help and so on and so forth. So it, it's a job of saying yes. And as an investor, your job is a job of saying no. So uh, like you said, right? I, I get entrepreneurs often come to me and and they will have this narrative. They'll say, you know, 
it's been really challenging lately because we've had a lot of attrition on the team and our product isn't selling as much as it should and we really need to get like a few million dollars in so that we can get past that. Well, you've just given me five reasons not to invest, right? Yeah. So those, why would those kind of narratives never sell to with investors. That, that's right, that's right. Versus if you know, if someone comes to me and says, Oh my God, we, we have, you know, so many contracts uh, and, and we are experiencing so much growth. Everybody wants to be on the team. I just don't have enough money to, you know, hire people so that they can, you know, go ahead and deliver on our customer commitments. Well, then I'm all of a sudden starting to think, well, wait a minute, that train is leaving the station. I better get on it or, or I'm off. <laughs> That's exactly right. So the corollary of our previous saying is that VCs love to come to the res- rescue of victory. And <laughs> That's also a very popular saying in our community. So it's a very interesting point that you mentioned because what you're saying is sort of the traditional VC industry, whales and minnows, right, is a little bit broken. Some people are just here for the show and some people are sort of, you know, coming in and, and, and <laughs> taking over a victory, as, as you say. And, and I would say that I, I tend to agree. The traditional industry is, um, you know, has, it, has its fault. Uh, the reason I, I talk about the dolphins is that this is something that, you know, we at, at our own scale are trying to change. And there are other dolphins out there who are saying we want to do things differently. In fact, we want to go back to the origins of venture capital where the origins was you have somebody who's, highly connected, highly experienced, highly valuable, who is helping a young entrepreneur. And, and there's, there's a whole system of apprenticeship, and this is a, a, a very, very core value to Mighty Capital. Yes. Where, where the co- next question that comes in, though, is the metrics of investment. So, for example, you have said that you like to invest in Series A and beyond. Well, to get to Series A these days, Series A has moved upstream, right? So, actually moved downstream. So, you ha- you may have to raise five rounds of capital before you even qualify for Series A. So, let's say in SaaS, the SaaS metric these days across the board is a million-dollar ARR. Getting to million-dollar ARR is not that easy, right? So, an entrepreneur has to either bootstrap to one million ARR or has to raise a pre-seed, a seed, a post-seed, a pre-series A before they get to 1 million ARR. So there's this whole, you know, early stage game that is very complex. Well, it's let, let's let's break it down a little bit because it's not that complex. It's uh, sort of back to your point about getting focusing your energy on on making revenue as opposed to raising money. And I encourage every entrepreneur I talk to 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 consider, especially you know in SaaS businesses where it is really all about the revenue traction. So I encourage entrepreneurs to to focus on that first, uh, and then raise money. And and let me uh, sort of give a different perspective on that. Uh, let's say you go, you you have an idea, and you decide that rather than build a prototype yourself, maybe teaching yourself how to code and maybe investing a little bit of your savings um, and, and being uh, capital efficient and, and very scrappy and, and very frugal. 
uh, let's say that you go to uh, an incubator, and the incubator is going to help you package your idea so that you can go and sell it to a few customers, and along the way, they'll take like 7 or 10% of your company. And so once you've done that, you go and you try and sell your company, but you find out that the best way to do that is to go to join an accelerator program. And the accelerator program is going to help you go from like 1 to 10 customers so that you're ready to raise your um, pre-seed or your seed round. And along the way, they'll take 10 to 20% of your company. And then you graduate from that accelerator and, and you're ready to raise a seed round um, to, to get you to staff up your team a little bit and, and build a replicable model. And they'll take anywhere from like 20 to 30% of your company. By then, you first of all, you have already lost control of your company. And pretty much any professional Series A investor will stay away from your company. And you're going to wonder why. Well, you have left in your company, like say about 30% ownership. And a Series A investor will take another 20% of that. And now you have 20%, sorry, 10% left. And what's in it for you? And you may think, oh, I, I want to change the world. I'm not here to make money. But on a day-to-day -day basis, like, why would you put in so much work if you're not going to get anything out of it? And that's why an investor would stay away from a company that has that kind of cap table. So the, you know, the, the, the moral of the story, if you want, the, the lesson learned is that when you're at the very early stage, you want to be incredibly, incredibly capital efficient, and you want to find ways to raise as little capital as possible and make as much revenue as quickly as possible. So you are preaching to the choir. I let you um, tell that whole uh, pitch because it's exactly our philosophy. We have a very clear philosophy of bootstrap first, raise money later. Um, we don't take any equity. We are the largest um, accelerator out there, most likely. Certainly the largest virtual accelerator um, in terms of the number of companies we work with. And we don't take any equity because I don't believe you should be taking equity as an incubator or an accelerator, especially not those kinds of equity. Um, if you are an accelerator fund, like a Y Combinator or Techstars, they're putting in 100, 200K, 100, 120K uh, for 5 to 7% of equity, and they do have great ecosystems, so that's, that's different. But the vast majority of accelerators actually don't add much value, and they take, take away a lot of equity, and, and exactly the scenario that you described happens. So our preference and our advice to our portfolio of companies is that do not – um, you know, do not try to raise money. Do not try to go to, uh, you know, go through these, you know, drip drab financing, fifty thousand here, twenty five thousand there, kinds of. And each round, you lose control of the company. Try to build your company on customer money and go straight to a significant round of financing when you have validation, when you know that you, you are going to be able to build a high-velocity large company. If you don't get there, but you are getting, you know, you're getting customer money, you're, you're making progress, just bootstrap a business. There are many more million-dollar, $5 million, $20 million ideas out there than billion-dollar, $2 billion ideas. So, so build a small bootstrap company, and that's fine, too. That's also we consider success. But this, 
you know, losing your company by doing seven rounds of financing and having 5% left for yourself, this is not the way to build a company. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, any any professional VC will, will agree with you because, you know, there has to be something in it for, for everyone, not just the venture capitalists, but also the entrepreneurs and, and vice versa. Um, another so the reason, uh, let me just thing. make one point. The reason I said it's very complex and you said it's not complex at all, I think it's very complex because for a first-time entrepreneur encountering all this complexity, they don't have the knowledge to make these decisions without help. They're, they make very bad decisions. I mean, we, we often see companies that have already given up 50% of their company and they're only at, you know, barely at seed. You know, they don't have enough goods to even raise any reasonable round of financing, and they haven't achieved very much, but 50% company has already sold off. Yeah. So one, one um, maybe additional point on, on this um, that, that we observe sort of on the exit side, we, we often hear companies tell us, oh, I, I will not settle for a small exit. And um, I want to challenge that for, for your audience and, and help them sort of see things in a, in a slightly different light. Every time I, I speak to a, to a room of entrepreneur, I, I, I ask the question. I say, well, you know, you, you have a, a small company and, and someone comes to you and they want to buy your company for $15 million. And then there's always one person in the room who has this, Irk reaction, like, oh my God, you just insulted me. Fifteen million, I'm going IPO or nothing. I'm going to challenge that view and say, fifteen million dollars can change your life, and for most people, it changes their lives, right? If you if you're into cars, you can buy five Ferraris. If you want to start another business, you can entirely fund it, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, one one thing that I, I tell entrepreneurs uh, all the time is that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you don't have just one idea in you. And if you're a first-time entrepreneur and you're offered an ability, an opportunity to land your plane at a 10 or a $15 million exit, do it because your next company will come. There will be a next company. And think about like how differently you're going to start that next company. What, what different position you'll be in when you can say, I'm a serial entrepreneur, I sold my company for $15 million, I'm self-funding the next one, and so on and so forth. Completely agreed. This is also very much part of our core philosophy. Excess is not a requirement of, for success. It's something that we talk about. We talk about these. We have a lot of case studies where an entrepreneur did a first company, did a small exit, bootstrapped the second company, and then did a much bigger company with that. So everything that you've said, I agree with. Uh, we constantly push these um, you know, early exit scenarios as well. If you have a smaller idea, smaller TAM venture, there, are, there actually are uh, some small funds, small, small micro VC funds that are starting to acknowledge this opportunity of you know, the fact that the vast majority of acquisitions in our industry happens at the sub-50 million price range. You know, anything beyond that is, is a very low probability event. So, you know, if you are working in the tech industry, you should be reasonably comfortable with probability. Do you want to play a very low probability game or do you want to 
you know, you, you can say you want to play this very low probability game, go big or go home. I think it's complete nonsense. I think you should play. If you have an idea that is very big and that is very high velocity and, and it's ready to go right away, you have a rocket, fine. That's a different trajectory. But the vast majority of companies do not have that trajectory. Hyper growth is not a natural state. And therefore, you should be thinking more in terms of how to do a capital efficient business, get customers, get product market fit, and find an early exit so that you have, you know, everybody makes money of the deal instead of stuffing up, um, you know, the cap table with lots of capital and then ending up as a zombie. Nobody wants to acquire you at the valuation that you want. Right. So we are completely in agreement philosophically, and uh, we must try to do some business together. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, great. It was a wonderful conversation. Audience, thank you for listening. And um, as you know, you can go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and find the free public roundtables tab and register to come and pitch or attend any of the mentoring sessions, and we'll be happy to work with you on your business. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the 1M by 1M podcast. Thank you for listening.